Well, this morning we'll be continuing our study in the book of Acts. We'll be looking through Acts chapter 6 and 7 and a couple verses of chapter 8. We'll read chapter 6 in a moment, so if you want to turn there. And if you're going to use the Pew Bibles, you can find Acts chapter 6 on page 887, 887. Next week, we will pause our study in Acts for a Christmas message from Matthew chapter 1. I rarely do that. I was talked into it this year. But Acts chapter 6, we will read through here. And I will explain the sermon title there when we get to the third point, a requiem for the temple. The the method to my madness will be explained in time, I promise. But first, we will read Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The early church father, Tertullian, coined a phrase you might be familiar with. It's the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But interestingly, when Tertullian wrote those words, this was before the first universal persecution had broke out among the church. Uh, Prior to 250 AD, the persecution that the church faced in the early Christians was primarily, it was episodic, it was particular, local to certain areas. And yet even though vast persecution had yet to break out, Tertullian saw something that was important that he addressed. He, He came to realize that the Roman Empire was seeking to persecute Christians in order to get them to make a display of their suffering and hopefully cause this new sect to die out. But Tertullian wisely wrote, We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
Again, the Roman Empire was hoping if we can just make some public, strong executions in certain areas, we can stomp this thing out. And later, this really becomes a global thing across the Roman Empire, different waves. But in the midst of those waves of persecution, it's been noted that actually, the more they killed the Christians, the more they grew. Some said as much as for every one Christian they martyred, two more would be saved. So, this morning's passage, however, draws from the very first martyrdom that the church experienced. And we're going to see that Tertullian was exactly right. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The difference, however, is that the martyrdom that takes place here in the book of Acts is not these Christians being persecuted by this polytheistic Roman Empire, an empire that actually oftentimes called and demanded its people to worship the emperor who'd been divinized. Uh, One emperor was a bit crazy, and he even divinized his horse. Uh, That was not the case in this first persecution, though. In the first persecution, as we're going to see, the first martyr was a Jewish-born man dying at the hands of his fellow Jews. And as it would turn out, the vast majority of the persecutions and martyrs that would take place in the first hundred years of the church were all the result of Jews denouncing Christians to the Roman authorities. The first ones are because they take matters into their own hands, but eventually they'll be turning them over to the Romans for further persecution. Now, by the way, this is why in the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, we read about the synagogue of Satan. It was a Jewish synagogue, like the synagogue of the freedmen that we just read about, but no longer did this Jewish synagogue honor the God of the Bible. Well, having rejected Yahweh's Messiah, the final revelation from God that Tertullian wrote about, they functionally have now rejected God himself. And these early chapters of Acts have been pressing this fact that the only way to worship God now that Jesus has come, now that the final revelation has been made, is through trust and faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other access. There is no other mediator between God and man. So this passage this morning, in short, is saying this. It is that the growth of God's word will lead to multiplying service and servants. We'll see that as we work through. I have a four-point sermon this morning. Do not take my Baptist card away from me. But the four points, as you can see up there, is a schism settled by servants, a slandered servant, a sermonizing servant, and a suffering servant. We'll explain those as we work our way through. But first, a schism settled by servants in the plural. Well, this chapter began with yet another reminder that the number of disciples was increasing. That is, the local church in Jerusalem was growing at an incredible rate. And as tends to happen, when a growing organization, you bump into administrative challenges. In particular, this one was the Hellenistic Jews, that is, the Greek-speaking Jews, those who went away with a diaspora and spoke primarily Greek, and they were coming back into the area and living there in Jerusalem. Their widows were not receiving the same amount of food uh, as the Hebrew-speaking or the, the Hebrew-living Jews. So this incredible generosity that we read about, read about last week, where people were selling land and, and giving provision to make sure that everybody was cared for, uh, is not reaching everybody. And so the church raises this concern and brings their concern to the leaders. And Luke tells us that the 12 apostles, which obviously includes Matthias, they gather the entire church together And they explain that as the leaders of the church, they must focus on the ministries of word and prayer. You see, the apostles knew that their authority, their ability to lead, and that the growth of the church, they all hinged on the ministries of word and prayer. And so the apostles respond to the church, tell you what, you choose seven men full of the Spirit and wisdom 
and they will literally wait on the tables. The, the word, the Greek word uh, to serve or wait on tables is the, the word deacon. To, to deacon is to wait, on, to wait, to serve. And the congregation follows the leadership of the apostles, and they present seven men who are then affirmed and installed by the apostles through prayer. Well, these seven men then, they form what's called the first deacons, the, the first servants of the church. And notice that these deacons, they meet a practical need in the church, and they do so for the sake of church unity. And having installed these deacons, we read there in verse 7, that the word of God spread all the more. The number of disciples increased rapidly because of these deacons. So in short, what this first little story tells us is it gives us an advanced picture of what the two offices in the local church will be. Uh, First, you have the apostles. They were serving as the elders, pastors, who are to focus on the ministries of word and prayer. Word and prayer ministries does not mean that every elder or pastor has to preach, but it's to say that in all of their meetings, whether in one-on-one or in small groups or in Bible studies, that they are using the Bible and prayer as the main tools of their service and ministry in a local church. Then the second group of office here we see is these deacons, these servants of the church. And we see that their role meets practical needs, and specifically it meets practical needs for the sake of church unity. That's why it's been well said that deacons function as shock absorbers. Uh, They kind of absorb the bumps of life together in this world, of the tensions of people spending time together. Now notice these deacons, they serve a specific area. In the Bible, deacons never have an oversight role in the whole church. They're always task-specific. They serve a particular function at the behest of the elders, pastors, who oversee the church and lead it according to the word and prayer. And this pattern of elders leading the church through word and prayer and deacons serving the church through practical areas is going to be further spelled out later in 1 Timothy 3 and elsewhere. I bring this up to say, as I often say, is that the Bible gives us a church structure. It tells us how a local church is to be ordered. Elders and pastors, the same thing. They lead through the word and prayer. And deacons serve to seek the unity of the church. But also, did you see in this passage... The congregation plays a role. They were tasked with choosing their leaders. So notice, though, the congregation doesn't lead. They bring the problem to the leaders, and then the leaders assign them a job to do. Go choose your leaders. And then the apostles affirm them. So because of passages like this is why I'm a Baptist pastor. When you, when you carefully study these passages, what you see is what Baptists have believed down through the centuries, that elders lead, deacons serve, And the church has some key responsibilities. Only the local church, the gathered members of a local church, have the responsibility and the authority to bring people in and out of membership and to bring in and out leaders. And along the way, they're led by pastors through their ministry of word and prayer. And again, deacons serve. So very practically, then, for us at Bethany, this is why we've begun this long, slow process of updating our church governing documents Because we believe that we must better align ourselves with the biblical pattern. That we should always be refining ourselves by God's word. And we presented these documents a couple months ago. And then the elders wrote and said, let's focus on the statement of faith first. Because the most important thing about a church is what they believe. And for the members in particular, an email went out this last week, that we're going to take our time. So we're not in any big rush. We're going to slowly work through these things together. Because the aim is to align ourselves with the Bible no matter how long the process takes. Because the goal is to make sure that the more faithful we are to the word, the better we are able to serve as witnesses in this area. So that's the first point of application. Other application from this passage shows us that thriving churches will have conflict. 
especially when they have different cultures and backgrounds. In particular, you have those in a Hellenistic culture versus those in a Hebrew culture. And the makes sense to us because each of us in our culture, we have blinders and blind spots. We have different things that we take for granted. So one of the most important things that we need to learn in the years ahead is from the insights of the various cultures represented here. Uh, How is it that there's things that we are taking for granted, we are taking for granted? Uh, How are we failing to love each other well and serve each other well? Our different cultural experiences bring that baggage. So we will need those of different cultures to help shine lights on the areas where we have blind spots. We need other Christians from different areas to get us outside of our bubbles. In addition, we have to navigate all sorts of different assumptions. There's the different assumptions of expectations from one generation to another. Uh, For example, we need to be aware of different communication styles. I first learned this when I was a youth pastor. Uh, I remember calling one of the kids in the youth group, and I instantly get a text message back. What's up? Sorry, what's up is I just called you because I need to talk to you. And so they send back again, text me whatever you need. Well, I had to learn how to love them well. So I had to adapt communication method to best serve those who are there. And sometimes that meant, well, no, I actually really do need to talk to you. I need to hear your voice right now. And so there's a give and take there. But how about for us? What are those differences between ages and stages and cultures here at Bethany that we need to learn about, to overcome? How are we going about doing so? How are we going about finding the cultural barriers that we need to understand to make sure that we can reach this area around us? Maybe to put a sharper point on it, I guarantee you there are aspects of Bethany's current structure and culture that will need to change to reach those around us. Uh, Always doing things the same way means that we probably will not be able to reach the changing culture around us. And so there may be prudential reasons for doing certain things, but maybe for the sake of mission, those things are no longer prudentially wise. Uh, That's why we should be careful to treat modern Western business practices as like the only way to do things. I mean, the vast majority of Christians down through history and around the world today don't have modern Western business practices, do they? So that's where we as a church wrestle and pray through. How do we best make sure that we are honoring what the Word says and matters of prudence? We are also accounting for how do we reach those around us? Well, part of us learning to live together in different cultures with those surrounding us will be is to be careful that we are not binding people's conscience with things that are beyond what the Bible says. Well, the Bible says we bind people's conscience. We say, you must believe this. Uh, matters of prudence, we have to be careful. And that takes conversations down through the years. So let's make sure that in this process, as we move forward in addressing church documents, that we do so with the eye on, let's make sure we honor what the Bible requires, and let's make sure we're careful to not bind people's consciences on things that the Bible does not require. Uh, To adjust where we can to make sure we are on mission as best as we can be here in this area. The last thing to see in this little area, did you catch what verse 7 said? Verse 7 says, So the word of God spread, the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's fascinating. Because for a priest to convert meant that they lost everything. Their whole job, their whole livelihood, their whole family was bound up with serving at a temple, which we've been seeing the last few weeks, and Stephen's about ready to hammer home, is now obsolete. They would have lost everything. Which is what led me to pray in the pastoral prayer. Friends, there will always be those who seem, from our human standards, to be on 
beyond our reach or beyond the gospel's reach, but that is never the case. Uh, So let us be those who press on in praying that we would see many saved who, who may not seem to be ones who we normally, by our human logic, would see saved. This verse gives me great hope about the many in this area that I walk through and see, many who grew up in Hindu or Muslim or the many Mormon churches around this area, that none of them are beyond the reach of the gospel. So let us be praying for those around us, that the Lord would save and call many. And for those of you with family who are in, involved in these other religions, press on in praying for them and ask us, have us join with you in praying for these people, that they would be saved. God does his work of reaching the nations through his word. And so the more faithfully the church can be structured and built around God's word, the freer the word is to work. And so we are seeking greater faithfulness to his word for the sake of mission. That's what the church is doing here in the first part of Acts 6. But that brings us to our second point, a slandered servant. So look again at eight, uh, 6, 8 through 15 there. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen, we here learn, is doing these signs and wonders, showing us that his ministry had shifted. Or as he began as a servant, a deacon serving to care for a particular area, no, his ministry changed and adapted, and he grew into a teaching role. David Peterson says, obviously, Stephen, and then later Philip, we'll learn about in chapter 8, they become preachers like the apostles. They become like the next generation of those carrying the apostolic torch, the, the torch of preaching the word to those around them. And Stephen, then, his miracles and wonders are supporting his word ministry, as we've seen throughout this book, because that's why the freedmen counteract him. Obviously, they wouldn't just counteract him merely for miracles. It's because his miracles are supporting this new word about Jesus. And so they're arguing with him about doctrine, but they could not stand up to him, the wisdom that the Holy Spirit had given him. Now, this synagogue of the freedmen were made up of diaspora Jews, that is, Jews who, again, had had lived outside of Jerusalem area. They were Greek-speaking like Stephen. And these are Jews who believe firmly in the law of Moses and the temple practices, probably the reason they moved back to the Jerusalem area from those other areas that we read about. However, when they get into the debate with Stephen, they lose. And so they devolve into deceitfulness. See, they were arguing for the right interpretation of the law, and yet they brazenly break the law by secretly persuading some to slander and lie about this man, Stephen. You see, friends, knowledge about God never guarantees obedience. The gospel is not merely a call to know about God, but it's to know and bow to Jesus in obedience. That is why the priests were obedient to the faith. They changed their understanding. Now, if you've ever watched any publicly moderated debates, what you'll find is you can always tell when someone loses when they shift to character assassination. 
when they shift to what's called ad hominem or against the person attacks. And that's essentially what they do here. They can no longer stand up with his biblical arguments, so instead, this tactic as old as time, they attack him. And I say it's a tactic as old as time because this is precisely what Adam did in the garden when God shows up to him. And God said to him, what is this you've done? What is Adam's response? Well, it's this woman you gave me. She's the problem. And as a matter of fact, you gave her to me, Lord. You're the problem. You're the reason I did this. You can see he's failed that debate. And though we laugh at Adam pointing his finger, I think if we're honest, isn't that how we tend to respond when confronted with our sin and weakness and failure? Do we instantly seek to point away from us? I mean, how often when something is revealed in our life do we make excuses and blame shift or lash out or maybe clam up? I mean, in so doing, we take the greatest means that God has given us to grow us and we cast them out of the window, as it were. We lash out at them. See, friends, there is no Christian growth. There's no lasting Christian growth in life apart from repeatedly being confronted with our sin and weakness and failure and then confessing and repenting of those sins. The Lord disciplines every son he loves and he uses our fellow Christians to do so. The question is, are we learning from them or are we fighting them? Are we willing to grow in humility and learn to be grateful for those eyes and ears that hear the ways that we sin, that we miss? Clearly, that was not the case for the freedmen. Because when their arguments fail, instead of humbly learning, they devolve into wicked slander. And then they seek to use Israel's obsolete but culturally powerful leaders to finish their dirty work for them. Notice the intentional parallels between the kangaroo court that Stephen endures and Jesus' kangaroo court. You can go back and read from the gospel accounts and you'll see them walk right down. They arrest him, though he's done nothing but stand on God's word. They drum up false witnesses claiming he blasphemed. In particular, they charge him with speaking against the temple and the law. Finally, they put the same words used against Jesus, against Stephen also, that he will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses. All that parallelism between what Stephen endures and what Jesus endured is trying to show us that Stephen is another suffering servant. That's why all the titles say servant. Now, he's not another suffering servant in the sense of Isaiah 53, who bears our sin and shame. No, of course not. But as you study the servant passages in Isaiah, what you'll find is the earlier ones are all corporate. It speaks of Israel as God's servant. And then they work themselves down to the suffering servant. Well, the rest of Acts shows that all of God's people are ultimately called to be his suffering servants. They are to follow Paul as he follows Christ. And Paul is a suffering servant, and so too here is Stephen. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul opens every single one of his letters with a servant or slave of Jesus Christ, because he's following in that example. So see, friends, every Christian is a servant of the gospel, and many will be called to suffer for it. Some will have a special calling to suffer, like Peter and here, Stephen and later Paul. But we are all called to be those who work for the kingdom, who are servants and witnesses of the kingdom. And that means we may very well end up like Stephen to be slandered servants. Well, verse 15, we read that Stephen's face shone like an angel. They make slanderous accusations against him, and yet his face is shining. What does that remind us of? Well, it should remind you of Moses' face as he went in before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and he came out and his face shone. Here's the point. No longer do God's people need a tent of meeting or a tabernacle or a temple. Now God, by his Holy Spirit, dwells with his people immediately. 
by the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And ironically, these obsolete Jewish leaders were so clinging to the masonry of the temple that they had lost the true meaning of the temple. Because didn't the temple all along serve to allow a holy God to dwell with a sinful people? To allow him to dwell in their midst? Isn't that what we just sang? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Was not that the point of the temple? And yet with Jesus' coming in the Advent series and service, what we learn is this, is that now that the final sacrifice has come, now that the final atonement has been made, we no longer need a building to have access to God. Now Jesus' life and death shows us there would never be enough bulls or goats or sheep to settle our sin issue. And yet Jesus' perfect and final sacrifice shows us that we never again need another building to mediate God's presence. What a sad blindness these temple leaders have. They see his face shining, the presence of God back to them, and yet they fulfill Isaiah 6, that seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. Well, having seen the slandered servant in our second point, we move to our third point, the sermonizing servant. This is the longest point. We'll walk through this in a couple steps. So first, the first 19 verses, 7, 1 through 19. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nations they serve as slaves. And God said afterwards, I will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power in Egypt. And he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. This third point, I said, is the reason I titled this sermon a requiem for the temple. Because Stephen's sermon is like a funeral dirge for the temple. But you have to read between the lines to see it all, at least until the end, when he finally shows all his cards. See, Stephen's responding to two charges. Did you catch the two charges? He's talking against this holy place, the temple, and changing or, or getting rid of the customs of Moses, right? And how does he respond? With a history lesson. Some have said, Stephen's speech is a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. What does this have to do with the charges brought against you, Stephen? All of a sudden, you're giving us a history lesson? Well, the main point of Stephen's speech all the way up until the last few verses, is found in the subtext of his speech. 
He's hinting the whole way along that guess what, guys? God didn't need a temple to call Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or the 12. Let's see how this plays out. The temple served a temporary purpose, but it was never a necessity for God. That's his point. And that's why he begins showing how God appeared to Abraham in Chaldea and later called him from Haran. Moreover, God gave him the covenant of circumcision. God did all of that. And guess what? He didn't have a building. Isn't that fascinating? You don't need a temple. That's the hint. Those promises were then passed down to Isaac and then Jacob and the 12 patriarchs. And once again, what was lacking? None of them had a temple either. And then in verse 9, he starts to drop hints about the second accusation. Uh, They said that he was violating or throwing out the law of Moses. And from their own history, he explains to them, you know what, it's kind of funny, our ancestors were pretty wicked. I mean, they sold their brother Joseph into slavery, after all. That doesn't seem probably like it adheres to the law of Moses, did it? The brothers were jealous, they sold him into slavery. How strange that God's covenant people could be so wicked. Yet, God was with Joseph in Egypt, where there was no temple. You catching the hints yet? Verse 16, Stephen says that the patriarchs were buried at Shechem. Now, this is a huge poking at his audience, because Shechem was where? In Samaria, not in Jerusalem where the temple was. What they're saying is, guess where, the, guess where our fathers were buried? Not at the holy place of Jerusalem, up there with the Samaritans, who we call half-breeds and dogs. No, the point is, God is not bound by a particular place. He doesn't need a temple. And then Stephen continues by recounting the life of Moses. He's going to do this in three chunks. Let's look at verses 20 through 43. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as their own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and as he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. And the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings and have come down to set them free. Now come. I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. 
They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So Stephen tells the story now of Moses, of Moses, how he was kept alive down there and adopted by the Egyptians. And Moses finally grows up and he realizes that that he's going to seek to be his avenger of his people. So he goes and ends up killing an Egyptian. The next day, Moses going out to try and take up this role, he tries to settle an argument. And the man responds, who made you ruler and judge over us? And it comes out, he'd killed the Egyptian. So he flees for his life, as we know. Another 40 years passes, and then Moses is, sees God appearing to him again in a burning bush, again with no temple. In fact, that burning bush right there alongside Mount Sinai was called Holy Ground, sending the big hint. It turns out there's no single place on earth that is holy. It's where God manifests his presence that is holy. And that same Moses, they rejected as ruler and judge, was appointed ruler and deliverer by God, is what it says. And he did signs and wonders, both there in Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness. And Stephen reminds them that Moses told the people one day God would send another prophet like him who would speak and mediate between God and the people. In verse 38, we read that Moses was with the assembly, or literally the church in the wilderness, showing this great amount of continuity between God's old covenant and new covenant people. Yet even though the people experienced God speaking through Moses, the mediator on the mountain, they saw the wonders In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They made a golden calf via Aaron, which they worshipped. Now, so far, Stephen's history has been pretty straightforward. I mean, we just kind of walked through Genesis and Exodus. But all of a sudden there in verse 40 through 43, he starts to collapse and telescopes. And what he does here is he uses the golden calf incident as this kind of typical thing that Israel did for the rest of their existence. Now, obviously, that's overly simplifying the situation because he didn't always commit idolatry. But what he does is he quotes from the prophets, particularly Amos, to show how basically starting with the golden calf worship, the rest of Israel's history could just be pictured as this constant going back to Egypt, going back to idolatry. And so that's why he picks up and uses Amos in a unique way. He quotes Amos who said, hey, in the wilderness you didn't worship to me, you worshiped your other false gods. And then finally there at the end, uh, the original wording of Amos says that uh, they will be exiled beyond Damascus, but Stephen changes it to beyond Babylon, because Amos was prophesying to the northern tribes who were going to be exiled beyond Damascus and Assyria, but now he includes all of Israel, southern tribes as well, so they'll be exiled beyond Babylon. So he consolidates all of Israel's history and basically saying, guess what? Your entire history is one that breaks Moses' law. That's the subtext that he's getting at. In other words, you might say that Stephen's speech up to this point was, they brought charges against him saying, you have spoken against the temple and you violated God's law. And he says, pot, meat, kettle. So have all of your ancestors down through the years. Well, now we go to verse 44 through 53. 44 through 53. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he'd seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors, under Joshua, brought it in with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, 
who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things? We'll stop there. Well, no, we'll continue. 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Where, there, where was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Okay, Stephen has given their history. Now he specifically addresses the temple. He gives a mini outline of the temple's history saying, look, here's the thing. For all of those years, there, there was no temple. Uh, there, there, no, God didn't have a temple. But, but then finally, we did have a tabernacle. And notice how long that tabernacle lasted. I mean, it lasted the, the whole time in the wilderness. It lasted for the conquest under Joshua. It lasted through all the judges. It lasted all the way up through David. It was only Solomon who finally built the temple. And guess what? The day Solomon dedicated the temple, what did he say? God, we know you don't really live here. The heavens can't contain you. God, you don't need a temple. We need the temple. So Stephen's point has been very clear. Then did you catch, in starting in verse 51, how the language shifts? Something like nine times throughout his whole history lesson, he has repeated, our fathers, our fathers, our people, our. All of a sudden in verse 51, it shifts. And it says, you and yours. You did not keep the law. You killed the prophets. You are just like your ancestors. Wait a minute. Aren't they our ancestors, Stephen? I mean, you've just said it like nine times. What's going on here? Well, Stephen is picking up the theme that we've seen in the first part of Acts. The true inheritors of the patriarchs have come to be those who truly believe in the promised seed of Abraham. Stephen is the only one among them who's honoring the true temple of God, which is God come in the flesh in Jesus Christ. John 1.14, the one who tabernacled amongst us. Stephen is saying, in only way to be a true Jew, a true inheritor of the promises of Abraham, one who truly enjoys the temple presence of God in the Son, is to believe in the Son. The implication, you, like your ancestors, are not descendants of Abraham. Not truly. The true seed of Abraham has the faith of Abraham. That's what Paul will go on to say. And it's precisely that point which is being driven home here. Those who, like these leaders, reject Jesus are descendants of fake Israel. Or as Paul says in Galatians 4, they're the children of Hagar. Their inheritance is the earthly Jerusalem, which is going to be burned up when the heavenly Jerusalem descends. That's why Stephen's language is loaded with Old Testament allusions. He says they're stiff-necked people. We'll go back and reread Exodus. That's precisely what God said about the Jews when they bowed down before the golden calf. You stiff-necked people. Moreover, it says that they're circumcised in flesh, but not in heart, which is what Moses said they needed to be in Deuteronomy. Their spiritual pride over their ancestry, their law, and their temple has led them to murder the righteous one, just like their ancestors who killed the prophets. They boast in receiving the law from angels, and yet they disobey it. Who really is faithful to the temple of God and the law of God is Stephen's question. Well, the lesson for us, well, at least one of them, should be clear. As the old saying goes, a failure to learn from history means you are very likely doomed to repeat it. I mean, how many of you reading through the Old Testament have seen, it's like the worst case of deja vu ever. Every single page you turn almost, it's 
God rescued you again and you turned again? That's why Stephen can telescope their whole history experience of just, nope, there they go, doing idolatry one more time. God miraculously delivers and yet they turn away. But again, if we're being honest, we're not that much different, friends. We're probably just as blind to many areas of recurring sin in our lives as Israel was. Don't think that our history is that much better than theirs. We're probably much more self-righteous than these temple leaders in certain areas. Like Israel before us, we are blind to many areas of our sin and weakness and failure. Which is why one of the books I recommended this year is called Knowing Sin by Mark Jones. It is superb. In his chapter on the sin of pride, Jones explains how one of the pathways of pride is, ironically enough, ignorance. So he says that ignorance of ourselves and how sinful we are leads us to pride. Just like Israel, who knew the facts of their history down through the years, they loved their history and pridefully boasted in their law and temple, but for all their knowledge, they were ignorant of their own failures to obey that law and to honor that temple. So Mark Jones writes, The proud justify themselves continually, but condemn others with consummate ease. They insist upon one law for themselves and another for others. The proud do not easily forgive others. They have failed to understand that their smallest sin against God is far worse than the biggest sin against them. Christians, how about for us? Do you retell your history in ways that makes you seem just a little bit less sinful? I mean, how many of you have had an argument with your spouse and you think, maybe I should apologize for that? And yet you think about it more and go, well, I didn't respond that bad after all. I mean, they provoked me. It's really their fault. Had them. Have we not? I mean, how often do we retell our history in rather perverted ways just to get ourselves off of the hook? Friends, those who don't know their own history, honestly, well, are doomed to repeat it. And downplaying sin in our lives, it only serves to minimize Christ's work on the cross. The more that we diminish and downplay our sin, the less the value of Christ's cross work is. Which is why when Mark Jones opens the book in the intro, he says this, Friends, other than knowing God, your greatest advocate, nothing else in the world is more important than knowing sin, your greatest enemy. A proper understanding of grace requires a thorough grasp of sin. A distorted, weak view of sin will lead to a disfigured, anemic, and unproductive theology. And he quotes Puritan Thomas Watson. The more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we will taste from Christ. So I think all Christians should read and reread Jones's book. I highly recommend it. Because, friends, we're just like Israel. We are famously skilled at retelling our history in ways that is self-justifying. But in so doing, we're cutting ourselves off from the sweetness of the cross of Christ and what he accomplished for us. Well, that brings us to our last and shortest point, a suffering servant. In verses 54 through the 8-3. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened in the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 
And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began destroying the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women to put them in prison. Stephen here follows in the footsteps of Jesus, becoming another suffering servant. The language Luke uses to speak of the reaction of the Sanhedrin is loaded with significance. David Peterson notes it well. They gnash their teeth at him. The gnashing of teeth is the language that Jesus speaks of those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will gnash their teeth. These obsolete rulers have rejected the Lord of glory yet again. They have heard the message of Jesus, and yet they have killed one more prophetic messenger to him. Then in verses 57 and 58, they cover their ears, blocking out the only message that can save them. And in so doing, they fulfill Isaiah's prophecy literally, that seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear, and their hearts will be darkened so they will not understand. Stephen, however, remains impassive. He just looks up, smiling, in, as it were, into heaven, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, a fulfillment of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, which we don't have time to go and look at now. But those two passages foretold that that's precisely what the Messiah would do. And even though these obsolete leaders are pictured as beyond hope, Stephen still falls on his knees at the end and prays that they might be forgiven just as Jesus had done. In their perverse justification of their sin, these leaders drag him out of the city to be stoned, their final resisting of the Holy Spirit. Actually, in verse 57, it says, they all rushed him. The, the Greek word there is used 10 times in the book of Acts, and it's with one accord in other translations. And every time it's been used before this, it speaks of all of God's people with one accord, growing in their love and care for each other. Here, and a couple more times later in the book, it will shift, and it will be used to say of those with one accord who oppose the gospel. So in the book of Acts, there are only two accords. There's with one accord, you follow after Jesus, or there's one accord you oppose him. There is no neutrality. And on that last day, everyone will either be in one accord with the serpent, being seeds of the serpent trying to strike the heel of Jesus and his followers, or they'll be one accord with the seed of the woman who crushed sin and death because they've repented and trusted in him. The way the narrative is written, we're, we're meant to get the impression that there's no hope for these obsolete rulers except for that hint about Saul. This young man who, who has the coats dropped at his feet. Now, some have said, with the coats dropped at his feet, perhaps that meant he was kind of a ruler. After all, he studied under Gamaliel. Uh, whether he's a ruler or not, we get this hint that this young man, Stephen, approves of the murder of this, uh, young Saul, approves the murder of this man, Stephen. And he's the one who's going to go and drag people off, as it says, killing them. Well, with this, Stephen's requiem for the temple is complete. The funeral dirge has been sung by the man whose last act was to look up into the true heavenly temple and see the presence of God with the son standing at the right hand. In the narrative of this book, there is no coincidence that Stephen's funeral dirge for the temple takes place right before the gospel goes to the nations. Why? Because there has to be a decentralizing. Patrick Schreiner notes it well. The decentralizing of the temple is what provides the foundation for geographical expansion. There's no pilgrimages. There's no more going to the temple anymore because the temple is where the Holy Spirit dwells with God's people wherever they're at. And then finally we read, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the local church in Jerusalem, causing all except the apostles to scatter throughout Judea 
in Samaria. Now, I opened by speaking of how the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that's precisely what we see here. Jesus had declared at the beginning of this book that the gospel was going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And God sovereignly uses this persecution to send out everybody except for the apostles to Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus had said. You see, this shows us again that, friends, our calling as Christians is not to focus on our comfort here. I mean, are you willing to be moved and relocated for the gospel? See, our aim must be, above all, to seek the praise of the name that would be advanced among the nations. Which is why I said this passage is saying this, that the growth of God's word leads to multiplying service and suffering. And for some, that service will be a call to go. For others, that will be a call to stay and suffer for the name. But I hope we see in these first chapters of Acts how again and again the call upon Christians is to be those who are willing to suffer for the name. And here we see the added element of we are suffering servants. I'll close with Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon from his morning and evening devotion. He writes about suffering, and his words about suffering are wonderful for mapping on to this passage. Spurgeon writes from one who is suffering, asking these questions. He says this, Is suffering part of God's plan with me? Can this be the way in which God would bring me to heaven? Yes, it is so. The eclipse of your faith the darkness of your mind, the fainting of your hope, all these things are but parts of God's method of making you ripe for the great inheritance upon which you will soon enter. These trials are for the testing and strengthening of your faith. They are waves that wash you further upon the rock. They are the winds which waft your shift more, ship more swiftly towards the desired haven. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, by plenty and poverty, by joy and by distress, by persecution and by peace. By all of these things is the life of your souls maintained. And by each of these are you helped on your way. Oh, think not, believer, that your sorrows are out of God's plan. They are a necessary part of it. We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom. How about for us, Bethany? Are we willing to meditate on Stephen's martyrdom and to see the wave of missionary growth that comes out of it and be willing to pray that we would be made suffering servants, following in his footsteps as he follows Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would grow the ministry of your word here at Bethany and beyond, even if that means multiplying our suffering. Would you grant us to see those sufferings as the waves that wash us upon you, the rock of ages? Would you make us servants, servants of your word, the servants of those around us, or the many who have yet to hear the name of Jesus, would they, through this church's witness and worship and loving each other, would be drawn in to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray all this for his sake. Amen.